developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Billions of people have vision problems, and vision is more than 2020. Vision Beyond Sight will help you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Your vision does not define you. You define your vision. With Dr. Lin's new way to look at your life through a new lens, you will be ready to meet yourself and receive visualizations for miracles to come. Welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. everyone, this is Dr. Lynn and welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Visiting us today is an extraordinary physician and educator, Dr. Judy Willis. Today we're going to talk about the brain and neuroscience research on learning. Let me share just a little snippet of uh, Dr. Willis's bio. I encourage you to go on our um, show notes and really learn more about what she's done and written and presented. It's just vast amount of wonderful literature and presentations. So Dr. Judy Willis combined her 15 years as a board certified practicing neurologist with 10 subsequent years as a classroom teacher to become a leading authority in the neuroscience of learning. Dr. Willis has written nine books and more than 200 articles for professional journals, applying neuroscience research to successful teaching strategies. She is on the adjunct faculty of Williams College. She travels nationally and internationally, giving presentations, workshops, and consulting while she still continues to write books and present to others. She's been elected by the um, Edutopia as one of their big thinkers on education. And she's featured on their website, as well as being a staff expert blogger for NBC's News Education Nation. And she's also has a presence on Psychology Today, The Guardian, and many, many more. I actually met Dr. Willis, and I'm not sure if you'll remember this, because it was at the Vision and Learning Conference uh, and the Brain Conference, I'm sorry, it was the Learning and the Brain Conference in 2010. I had just uh, written a book, and it was either 2010 or 2011 that I did a presentation there and saw your book, How Your Child Learns Best, Brain-Based Ways to Ignite Learning and Increase School Success. And that book was not only validating, but I use that as a reference. I use many of your quotes in my presentations and have been following you ever since that time. So what I love is how you really have utilized neuroscience research to explain how kids really learn and why they're struggling and why there's certain emotions and attention. So Dr. Judy Willis, welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Oh, thank you. And uh, Lynn, congratulations on your presentations. And I regret that I don't remember a specific uh, connection, but I'm delighted to um, connect with you now. Well, there must have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patients of uh, people that attended that conference. So so let's kind of jump in and tell us a little bit about your story of jumping from being a neurologist to an educator. 
Okay. I, after my first about 10 years of practice of neurology, and uh, I noticed that a rapid relative increase in the number of kids that were being referred to me because they were having trouble in school. Um, but it was a big increase in the number. And there was no increase in the number of kids that actually did have Tourette's or petit mal epilepsy or uh, other neurologic diagnoses. And so I wondered why they were getting, I was getting these referrals from the schools. And as I checked it out, met with these wonderful teachers who had been my daughter's teachers in uh, elementary school. So I knew they were not the problem. I saw that the problem as I described was kids had to memorize a lot of things. It was not engaging, not obvious for success for each and things had to be eliminated from the classroom in the interest of standardized tests of the memorized material. So I felt that I could make a difference if I could apply neuroscience and neurology to how to help these teachers, help these students do the memorizing more efficiently, effectively, and still then therefore have the time to bring back things that made school great and fun and the glitter and the art and the walls and the music. So I thought about that, but realized to do that, I needed to be a professional, not just neurologist, but educator. So that's when I stopped my neurology practice, went back to school, got my teaching credential and master's and spent the next 10 years teaching in primary and secondary school, applying in my classrooms what I felt was a good application of neuroscience to teaching. And when things would work out, as I hoped, I would write articles and eventually books about it. But it took, I really felt I needed that authenticity of being a teacher to walk in those shoes before I would make recommendations. So that's what took me to this. Well, that's just an amazing story um, to actually go into the, I, I saw that you were like second and third grade teachers and really get into the process of early learning. Uh, what a gift you brought to those students and certainly the parents. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm, I see a lot, I, I see many kids that have visual processing problems affecting their learning. And often their overriding history is all about their emotions, their stress, and how that impacts learning. And we're looking to see, is there a visual component of that? But explain how emotions and stress impact learning, especially you know, the, this boredom. I see so many, I get a lot of referrals of kids who have been identified as being gifted and they're acting out in the classroom and I'll ask them about school and all they can say is boring. Um, so tell us about how those emotions stress really do impact learning from a neuroscience perspective. Well, what I've understood, my interpretation of the research is that when stresses are high, the brain becomes less efficient. And especially in, in kids in school ages, when stress is perceived threat or high stress from sustained boredom or sustained repetitive frustration to achieve goals, those types of stresses can increasingly impact the success of information acquisition and, and retrieval in the brain and that 
we see some changes in neuroimaging on, in the amygdala impacting impact information flow from intake to prefrontal cortex. So the support is there supporting the correlation of stress, including boredom and frustration in school to less efficient uh, flow of information and simultaneously, if there's not enough flow to the prefrontal cortex in, there can there appears to be diminished access from these executive functions in the prefrontal cortex down to the behavior directing part of the lower brain. So with high stress, such as from frustration and sustained boredom, the flow through the amygdala top down is impaired. So the brain flips more into the reactive state, the fight, flight, freeze state, where behavior is appears to be related to attention or, or willful or not having the intelligence or laziness, but in many cases is correlated with the high stress of boredom or frustration to achieve goals. So some of uh, what you said is obvious what to do about that when they're bored, but uh, often, especially in big classrooms and um, if they're not, the kids aren't behavior problems, they get overlooked. So are there some relatively simple strategies a parent or teacher could use to unlock the stress blockade? Well, the, again, the, now we're going outside of the objective uh, formal neuroscience imaging reports, but the, so the support that I found, have found appropriate is to increase the personal relevance. If one is going to increase the flow through this amygdala, it really helps to uh, boot the interest and motivation to know the information. So uh, in any way that the instruction in a classroom or the parents seeing what the child is doing can make it personally relevant from past history, from knowing what the child's interests are, anything that uh, knowing what they can do with the information once it's acquired and knowing what careers use this information, finding ways to make it personally relevant will sustain, I believe, the, the successful uh, passage of the information through the brain and mitigate boredom and frustration. Yes, and that's certainly the magic key. Um, and I know your books have some activities that we can talk about later in there. Um, you know, one of the things that I gleaned from one of your books was just showing uh, a child the picture of the brain and expecting, you know, explaining basic parts and basic processing could be helpful. And what I sort of adapted out of that is I'd show them a picture of the brain. And if we were working on, for example, visualizing spelling, and I see in their body and in, in their eye movements that they're, you know, curled up, looking down, very stressed, we'd go back to the picture and I say, hey, you're probably processing this part of the brain. There's no answers there. And they kind of look up and through, again, a basic neurology, we sometimes are able to break a pattern of behavior to get into a more resourceful place in the brain for processing. Would, would you agree, you know, that's kind of a 
it seems to work with my little patients that, um, you know, they're certainly not going to understand a deep level of neurology, but just understanding that the brain uh, has different parts that processes uh, information for different reasons. Well, I certainly understand that how it's been, uh, what you're saying, it's been effective for you. I can't comment on whether it's supported by neuroscience. Sure. But, uh, if it's, it works out, then that's a good thing for you. For uh -huh. them. Is there more from the neurological standpoint um, that you'd like to share with our listeners so they understand uh, learning better from neurology that you'd like to share before we get into some other specifics on, you know, focus and attention and strategies and things like that? Um, nothing specific because I'm I'm pretty strong on the science end, so I think that we'll just see where you go. Okay, great. You know, what are some of the latest research on you know the neuroplasticity and learning? What are some of the you know new things coming out that can really help us understand what's going on with our kids' behavior? As I. The neuroplasticity research is going into things like connectomes and diffusion tensor imaging. It's not answering questions. It's still at the investigation recognition level. So it's the primary research about neuroplasticity in recent years that I have evaluated uh, supports that the more a circuit is activated, the more, the more myelin it gets, the more dendrites are there and correlated with that is increased uh, skill development and durability of the memory, that type of neuroplastic response. Mm -hmm. And that's now increasingly seen, not just in the local area, but also through longer pathways. Interesting. Um, so let's switch gears just a little bit and look at focus and attention. Is it our perception that there are more kids that are showing focus and attention problems? Is it because of learning style or maybe we're just aware of it? I mean, can you comment on the prevalence of focus attention issues right now? Yeah, there does seem to be an increase and that's something that uh, is important. The correlations that I made during my practice and education is that this diminished focus attention was impacted by the change in the emotional filter, the amygdala that limited the downflow from the prefrontal cortex to behavioral, behavioral control in the lower brain and to construction of memories. So without the skills of executive function traveling down to increase distraction inhibition, to promote prioritizing, organizing, goal develop, goal uh, active behaviors. Those things are skills that are developed over the years, but they are impaired by sustained or repetitive flow into the prefrontal cortex through the emotions, and they need to be recognized and built up, especially during the school years when neuroplasticity is high in the prefrontal cortex. And so what are your thoughts about being in the digital age and especially through this pandemic where kids were on screens 
for hours. Um, what impact do you believe that may have on this folks' attention? And you can expand it to learning as well. I think that I haven't seen strong correlation that that screen time directly impairs attention skills. That specific correlation, a causation has not been uh, supported to my uh, interest or to my belief. But I think that the compelling nature of things on the screen is something that are yeah that the brain wants it wants the pleasure that wants to avoid the negative feelings of frustration and boredom and the elements of the video game model that kids are seeking at screen on screen time that satisfaction that dopamine response are very valid and the lesson from it is not to try to keep the screen away from the child because they'll get access but to promote educational experiences that cause the same satisfaction and pleasure that they are getting from screen time. So incorporating digital learning, incorporating uh, three-dimensional experiences, coding, and the things that they are getting feedback from on these pleasurable video experiences uh, are there and we need to embrace them in education which I love and totally agree. Um, and question, how much is this transformation happening? I mean, are you seeing changes in schools to try to do you know, these creative ways of learning? Is there any shift in, in major school systems that you're aware of? Now, that's a great question. And unfortunately, I can't answer it. I'm hoping for the best, but what my experience are continued to be when I'm at a school and somewhere in the world or country, you know, getting uh, personal uh, feedback from administrators and curriculum that what is being done there, but I don't know general statistics and I am concerned that there's still a big burden for administrators and educators and therefore the parents of standardized tests and the difficulty making them engaging, which takes time and money. So I believe that if school, when schools have the money, the time for teachers to become, to have professional development, how to use things from the model of the video game model, the dopamine, the goal-directed behavior, personal relevance, ongoing feedback, that when that happens, it's effective, but it takes time and money to support these schools and educators. So I'm not sure we're happening, we're doing it at the best pace yet. Yeah, thank you for that. You know, I, um, I mentioned that I do see a lot of uh, patients that have been identified as being gifted from a psychologist, psychoeducational specialist. And one of the things they often find, it's written in their reports is they have slow processing speed. And when I've talked to some of these kids, you know, they're seven, 10, 12, I'll ask them about, gee, did it really take you that long to read or that long to call the numbers out? And their comment often to me is, oh no, I just have to recheck and double check and, you know, look at all the options. If it was a time test, they'd read a question, look at answer A and go, no, that's not correct. However, if this was changed, it could be this or that. 
So their whole processing is in such a different depth that under the time conditions, time tests, they often don't perform well. And then you have this overlay of emotion on top of it as well. So, you know, the question is, what are time tests? What kind of information are time tests really giving us? Yeah, good points. Yeah, so that's so interesting. Well, you had mentioned executive functioning. For our listeners, uh, could you explain a little bit more what that means, the neurology behind that? And, um, okay. That's um, a big buzzword now in education. Functions, the executive functions um, in neurology have been part of the neurologic assessment for more than 100 years. They're characteristics that have been found initially before there was neuroimaging, been behaviors, uh, skills that that have been initially found 100 years ago to be uh, deficient, damaged, or reduced when at autopsy, uh, people who had had certain disorders would correlate with uh, damages in their prefrontal cortex. So over time, certain behaviors will link to prefrontal cortex activation. And then with neuroimaging, prefrontal cortex activity, and strengthening. So these characteristics that have been attributed through, you know, indirectly, but through neuroimaging and, and autopsy um, include things that we consider executive behaviors, the CEO of a corporation. So the skills such as judgment, organization, prioritizing, uh, critical thinking, the goal developed goal focused behavior, delaying immediate gratification, those skill sets develop, appear to develop in the prefrontal cortex uh, throughout life, but more profoundly at a more rapid pace in the prefrontal cortex during the school years. So the things that are considered executive functions are those things I just mentioned, and they are correlated with development in the neural circuits in the prefrontal cortex. Um, throughout life again, but more profoundly during the school years. And they all in a way are, according to neurology uh, interpretation, toward goal-directed and decision-making. If one thinks of all the executive functions, judgment, prioritizing, organizing, uh, those skilled critical thinking do conform to a net of goal-directed behavior and successful decision-making. But that's, the words don't matter. The concept of executive functions, just thinking what a CEO does. Yeah, that's, that's what they do. That's great. Well, Dr. Willis, we're gonna take a quick break. And when we come back, I'd love to start talking about some of the strategies that you've uh, presented and so much of your material. So we'll be right back. Dr. Lynn will be right back after this. Can your child see, really see, more than 2020? Does your child struggle in school, have trouble with tracking when reading, or resist writing? 
Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's award-winning book, See It, Say It, Do It, provides parents and teachers with specific tools and strategies in visualization and processing. Improve and empower your child's learning and performance in school, sports, and play. Get See It, Say It, Do It on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's book, 50 Tips to Improve Your Sports Performance, has identified the top 50 ways for you to achieve excellent results in any sport activity, enhance eye-mind-body coordination skills, achieve the mental edge, prevent injuries. This book belongs in every athlete's or coach's sports bag. Get 50 tips to improve your sports performance on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Welcome back to Vision Beyond Sight. Here's Dr. Lynn. Hi, welcome back. We're here today with Dr. Judy Willis, who is a board-certified neurologist and now a leading authority in neuroscience and learning. And this first part, part of the podcast, we talked about some of the uh, neurology, neuroscience um, research that's been going on and really being able to understand how kids learn and if we understand better how they learn, then that will hopefully give us better ideas of how to teach them so they're more successful. So let's get back to, uh, we started with executive functioning and you explained um, the whole network of that, but can you give us some strategies that parents and teachers could implement to help their students? Well, thinking about what the executive functions are, informed decision-making, analysis of information, validating what is coming in from media, making decisions with thoughtfulness rather than reacting, reflecting, taking time. So those decision-making, goal-oriented, goal-achieving neural subsets that underlie the networks of executive function that are developing do well with neuroplasticity. The more they're used, it seems that it enhances the neuroplastic development. And indeed, without specific interventions, they will and do all uh, build up over time. There is a developmental pathway that's taking place in the prefrontal cortex and correlates with these better executive functions. But it seems reasonable that activation, the more firing, the more wiring. So giving students the opportunity to make decisions, guiding them for how these could be biased by media, giving them opportunities to have input to the family's choice of a vacation when they also would need to support their choices. Oh, we're going from... Uh, New York to Florida, we have four days. Where should we stop? And here's our budget. So having a voice makes it personally relevant. And having when students and, and kids have their opinions 
responded to with adult responses rather than saying, well, that's too expensive or that's foolish or in a classroom, rarely see teachers do this, but to say, oh, well, that's wrong. It, it's important to keep it open so learners get to use executive functions, get feedback when their choices, when their decisions, when their goals are being successfully achieved, but en route to the goal, not waiting till it's final. Um, so when there's feedback that the activation that they're using their executive functions for is helpful, is useful, is validated, that's going to increase effort and motivation to keep working at it. That's great. And I certainly heard several times that you talk about neurons that fired together, wired together. Um, And and that, again, is the importance of um, practice and not necessarily just boredom repetition, but practice does not make perfect. It makes more permanence is how I see that. The other thing that I also hear you saying a lot is about the importance of inquiry instead of yes, no answers or giving that was good result. It's more them exploring themselves. How was that? What did you like about what we were doing? And that inquiry and feedback is really, it's all about learning to have a conversation, really, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, well, first I want to make sure that Heb, not me, gets credit for the more firing, more wiring. That's um, Heb's postulate from about 100 years ago. So it's it's held true all of these years, even though Heb didn't, didn't have uh, neuroimaging. But yes, that principle is what neuroplasticity, the more a neural circuit is activated, the more electricity is traveling in, this, in that circuit. It appears that at that point, more glial cells come and come and help produce more myelin and more dendrites and more synapses. So anyway, not me, but have the, uh, the development of, of skills and uses appears to be important, valid, and unfortunately limited because again, if the, with an emphasis on yes, no, or right, wrong answers, we, when I was teaching and educators, are limited by seemingly by what needs to be um, mastered or not really mastered, learn for a test. And, and as my co-author, Jay McTie says, you know, is the juice worth the ski- squeeze or is our job to just cover or to uncover. And as Jay McTie would say, inquiry-based learning is an opportunity for learners to be personally engaged through their interests, through their uh, best modes of gathering information and getting feedback. So as they're learning, they're using the information in ways that are appealing and chosen and goal oriented with sustained authentic feedback. So when learning involves things like inquiry and project-based learning, the information becomes more incorporated within the neural networks of memory, more personalized, more required, and more able to be retrieved. Again, as 
Jay McTie would say, to transfer to other future problems, challenges, careers that we don't even know will exist. So we want those experiences of learning and using as one learns, modifying, adapting, that process takes time and it doesn't guarantee memorizing every bit of data, but it's the positive experience in the long run that is reflected in that type of learning. Yeah, beautifully said. Thank you on that. You did mention uh, memory as well. Um, let's talk about some strategies for increasing memory and mental manipulation. Um, I know sure. in your books, you had some strategies on visualization and go ahead and uh, whatever you'd like to. Uh... Oh, okay. Um, for memory, there's the two parts. There's the initial encoding of sensory input into short-term memory. And then it, that takes place sort of right after the amygdala and the hippocampus, among other areas. And then that short-term working memory is transported. If, it, if there's this connection, it's transported up to the uh, prefrontal cortex where it needs to be mentally manipulated, acted on, acted on to become sustained in long-term memory. So the first part, the short-term memory in, you know, for example, the hippocampus, it involves one important thing, most important thing, linking the new to the known. If new input is going to have a chance, it has to get into short-term memory. So there needs to be activation, and it will happen most of the time naturally, of what does the brain already know that it can link with this new information so that it has some way to hook into memory? So linking the new to the known, uh, again, not a new idea. Piaget described how information was stored in schemas and activated in schemas. Things that were related were stored together, which makes a lot of sense so that when something related, the brain recognizes, oh, uh, this has a motor and it's moving down the street with four wheels and has a noise. Uh, but all the ones I've seen before like this were red. Those were cars. So this one is yellow. So this is a car. So the, the correlation of knowledge that develops over time and experience and exposure, the brain will store that in uh, connected regions. So once we know that it's stored that way, facilitating the learner to activate that prior knowledge that we know they have, but they may not have any clue why this yellow thing is the same as the other red cars. So we need to help guide them by helping them activate what category of knowledge should they use to link this new to. So if kids are learning about shapes in kindergarten and one day they do triangles and circles and squares and then the next day they're going to do rectangles well it's really a, a premature to assume that their brains know that the rectangles are another thing in this whole concept of shapes so having a for example a bulletin board or graphic organizers that's have them put the thing with circles and squares in venn diagram or just figure out the concept. What are these? Are these forms of liquid? No, these are shapes. So then when rectangles come in, okay, so what shapes did we already learn about? 
by reviewing those circles and squares and triangles, that prior knowledge neural network will be preheated. So when the next comes in about rectangles, the link will form the new with the known, the new shape with the concept of shapes. So preheating is activating the new to the known for short-term memory. Mental manipulation is what needs to happen if that short-term memory is going to be sustained for more than a minute or so. So that's the, the a long, many interventions, but I don't know if how much you want to go into on that now. Uh, just a couple examples. Uh, if you maybe speak from your second, third grade teaching, if you had a little third grader who's not learning their math facts, for example, you know. Well, if, if the information makes it through short-term memory, it may not be, if they're not learning their math facts, they might need more uh, interactive, like video game model opportunities to, for the rote things they need, like the encoding or, or of numbers and numerosity, numerals and numbers and words and phonics. So those things need to happen early. And those things are, those are not optional. So the basic groundwork of literacy and numeracy does requ require constant uh, repetition so that those things are embedded. And it does, doesn't have to be by road. It doesn't have to be two times two, two times two, two. It, it can be with manipulatives. So moving on though, once the short-term memory is encoded linked to something that's already known, like the rectangles linked with the other shapes, going up to the prefrontal cortex, things that sustain it for more than just a minute or so uh, would be doing something with the information that links it into more extended networks and experiences. So if the information came up that yes, a triangle, a rectangle is one of these shapes. So that little cluster makes it to the prefrontal cortex. But how do we make that hunk of knowledge, not just a little remote far memory that's been memorized, repeated, myelinated, but you know, that's not that useful. It can be Retrieve maybe if someone said which of these is a shape and five are listed and one of them is a uh, something like a, a a dream and the other one is square, circle, triangle, rectangle, then which one is not a shape would be a dream. That's not what we're going for here. We're going for a long term memory, making use of the information. So, for example, experience taking that new link to the rectangle and experiencing it mentally or physically with manipulatives in multiple sensory opportunities. That could be reading aloud so that one hears it while one seeing it. It could be imagining what a rectangle would feel like in a building or in nature. What it could, what color, rectangles could be. So as they mentally manipulate it with different senses, it's getting manipulated so that the whole circuit is presumably activated and strengthened, but it's also potentially increasing the areas in the brain where it might be stored through different sensory modalities. 
So multi-sensory mental manipulation uh, from visualization to imagination and sensory and applying using the information that came in from short-term memory, what can they do with it? Just not ending it there. You can answer a multiple choice question, but how can this information that you now have strongly in your uh, long-term memory for a while, how can you use it? So those activations of why it's useful, how I can use it, and how I could think of it with multiple senses all work for me. That's great. And that's, you know, really where I see so many strategies being effective of multi-sensory approach, tactile, uh, visual, auditory, movement, all of the senses together, not yeah. only physically out in the world, but internally. And you mentioned visualization and imagery, uh, imagery and that, you know, one thing, imagery is really my uh, passion and, and what I love. And you know, a lot of people think imagery is just make the picture in your head. And I see imagery as a multi-sensory, see it, feel it, hear it, touch it, move it, change it, all of those kinds of things. Um, so there are numerous strategies and ways to really um, reinforce that rather than, you know, we have those kids that they memorize for the test, but then there's no relationship with what they learn that they can take to the next activity. And um mm. Thank you for explaining that, especially to the long-term uh, memory on that. Uh, we just have a couple minutes left, and I just wanted your take on, um, especially kids that have been identified as ADD, ADHD, because so many parents, the first thing they all hear often from the schools are, put your kids on meds. And many of the things you've talked about today haven't even been addressed or looked at. And, you know, they're looking just at that behavior in the classroom, which, of course, being a teacher has got to be very challenging or, or parent. So, you know, how do you answer that question when somebody comes to you and you know, either asked you about meds or when you were both a neurologist and a teacher? I, uh, that's certainly a good question and continues to be a challenge. But rather than knowing being able to make a recommendation general when meds are appropriate, I support considering what the cause of the inattention is. So as we talked about, if the flow to the executive functions through this emotional filter are and down and up are impacted by things like emotional stress, boredom, frustration, then is that why they are being diagnosed or, or categorized as uh, attention disorders or as uh, misbehaviors or as lazy. So assessing what situations in which this problem arises, is it also arising when they're playing soccer or when they're learning how to do texting or when they're building creative skills? If, if it's not a universal problem, then, and it's related to specific experiences when we're seeing the attention problem, then I think that really deserves a good look. What is the impact emotionally, physiologically in the brain of these experiences? And how can we see that this learner has facilities for attention? 
So what's happening or what could happen more successfully so that they naturally connect with their best attention tools rather than being frustrated or bored. So why in certain circumstances, what's activating their stress, blocking their attention and what can be modified. So skip over the initial diagnosis that one gets as I did as a teacher or a neurologist and start fresh. I love that. Pay attention to. Yeah. And it takes a team approach. And the issue is it takes time. It's not a five or $10, a 10 minute office visit to evaluate that. But, you know, it reminds me of a patient that I'd saw once that had been, uh, it was being looked at as being a ADD uh, diagnosis. And he only had ADD with reading, you know, so it's like, hello, let's stop and look and see what's going on here on reading uh, before that diagnosis. Well, Dr. Willis, I am just so honored to have you and, and thank you for your time. I want to make sure that uh, you share how and where people can get more information and any of the websites you'd like to uh, promote. Uh, the information you sent to us will be on our show notes, but uh, are there a couple books or websites, programs you'd like to certainly uh, recommend? Uh, no, I think on my books, all nine of them are probably there when one links to my website or under publications on my website. So it's uh, hopefully most of the things there are without cost. Certainly most of my articles and the videos done of me are open access. So I think that it's a little choice grab it through the list of links on my website. That's great. Well, I so thank you again uh, for who you are, what you brought to the world in learning. And um, I love the programs on uh, learning in the brain conferences. I think they're fascinating. And I continue on my journey of understanding more about neuroplasticity with my emphasis being in vision. We appreciate all of you listening and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for joining us today on Vision Beyond Sight. Join Dr. Lynn Hellerstein each week to help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Remember, your vision does not define you. You define your vision. For more information and find additional podcasts, visit lynnhellerstein.com. See you next time on Vision Beyond Sight.